the inflation or globalization Fear is a weapon of mass destruction My dad came into my room holding his hat I knew he was leaving He sat on my bed, told me some facts Son, I have a duty calling on me You and your sister be brave, my little soldier And don't forget all I told you You're the mister of the house now, remember this And when you wake up in the morning, give your mama a kiss Then I had to say goodbye In the morning woke mama with the kiss on each eyelid Even though I'm only a kid Certain things can't be hit Mama grabbed me, held me like I was made ago But left her in the store was untold to 
Friday. It is October 9th. And here to bring you the news, which is depressing. And so we play music and opened up with uh, Mass Destruction by Faithless, as well as Peaches. Uh, Peaches has a new album out called Rub. And I was going to play the song Rub. Uh, Certain songs even make me blush and uh, couldn't quite do it. So this is a song called Close Up uh, featuring Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. And I recommend checking out the video. The video is pretty awesome. So yeah, there's a lot to get to with uh, news today, and I always debate as to, do I start off talking about what's going on? Ooh, yes! Because uh, always something happens during the week that's, I think everything is connected, so it's it's just interesting to, to talk about what's actually happening. So I went to the mayoral debate, and Ed Lee showed up. There was a debate, there was a debate pre- before the debate as to whether or not Ed Lee would actually show up, and he did show up. And uh, there are six candidates there, three of, of whom we've had on the show, Francisco Herrera, Amy Farrah Weiss, and Stuart Shuffman. And they're all there, and they were great. And then there were two more folks who were also, um, I, I dug with what they had to say. And so... Uh, yeah, it was awesome. It was at Genentech Hall, which is, I was talking to Amy beforehand. They had this event actually at Oasis earlier this week. 
called Political Squares, and they had quite a few folks there. Stuart Shuffman was also there, and uh, Tom Temperano, and Tom Amiano, and Scott Weiner, and Heclina, and Margot Gomez, and Natasha Muse, and Kasim Bentley. And uh, it, was, it was really cool to see a show that was political and entertaining, because those are things that I enjoy. And quite often, there's something that's entertaining, and there's not, it's not quite political, or there's something that's political, and it's not entertaining. So it was nice that there was some humor involved, and things were actually talked about, and there was some knowledge that was discussed. And uh, it's great when that happens. And I felt like the debate was, was similar. There was some humor there, and there were, were folks um, calling for the people in power to, you know, holding them accountable and just kind of calling them on their bullshit, which is so refreshing and so wonderful. And there are a lot of supporters there. So anyway, uh, so I saw Amy at the at, uh, political squares uh, on Tuesday. And, you know, we we're talking about for the debate, which was put on by the League of Women Voters, uh, how it's important just to show up early because it fills up quickly. And I was thinking, making the comparison about sporting events and how it's sometimes it's nice to have the, the home team advantage in a way where you have folks in the audience or the crowd, not the audience, the crowd, uh, <laughs> same thing really though, who, who you know, support you and uh, can offer encouragement and who are, you know, uh, want you to do well. And and so I was thinking, oh, yeah, it'd be great if we had as many folks in the in the crowd as possible to really, um, you know, inspire these these candidates. And then to hear that the event was happening at Genentech, uh, which is like a you know tech company certainly. And then it's like, wow, what about this actual home advantage that I'm thinking of with the? It's is there really a home hometown advantage if it's at a at like this tech company? And there was one candidate who was like did work in tech. Um, and it, it wasn't like you're with tech or you're not. It was more just thinking about Ed Lee's policies and his relationships with certain companies. So it didn't quite feel like it was this, you know, it was, it was very corporate. That's what I'm trying to say. The, the setting was very corporate. And uh, thankfully, so many people went that they had to do overflow rooms. So I didn't make it in time to get in the actual room where the debate was happening. But they had a room nearby where they were... Uh, broadcasting it and it was cool there was like, a lot of people in there too and I was really um, enjoy- I enjoyed that so many people took interest and made it out of their way to go and to actually watch this debate happen it made me feel a lot better and I'm very skeptical uh, when it comes to the, the structures and the systems that are in place and there's definitely that part of me that's like oh it'd be great to create something completely new because um, I feel I definitely feel like once one is part of it then you can't help but be part of the system I do, though, uh, tip my hat to anyone who wants to um, throw their energy and their ideas into it, though, to improve upon it and to change things. And I think that's wonderful. And the fact that people are doing that is great. So it was really awesome and inspiring to see folks there speaking their truth. And there was talk about decriminalizing sex work. And there was talk about um, how to actually care for people who are on the streets here. And that's something that Mayor Lee hasn't, and not only has he not addressed it, but he is kind of demanded, especially as the Super Bowl approaches, to, you know, clear out folks, which is just a heinous idea. And there was also was talk about the, the Super Bowl with just this idea of even the 49ers moving down to, to Santa Clara and how Candlestick Park, which is, it's a shame that it was kind of closed down when it could have provided jobs and instead everything kind of moved down to Santa Clara. So... Yeah, there was a lot that was that was there's a lot happening there certainly and apparently uh, uh, there was quite a lot of speculation and I believe it that Ed Lee paid people to come in and did not provide translation for them. So yeah, so there <laughs> there's that uh, which is you know, it makes sense when there are folks in power when you have the capital to do what you will when you when you pay people to support you 
and that's I guess that goes into the whole military industrial. Ooh, this will great. Oh yeah, I found a segue. Awesome. Uh, the, the, with the military, with the military industrial complex, when you have money to pay people to do things for you that are not necessarily in the interest of the greater good, which brings me to the the Blue Angels. Uh, so yesterday there was quite a lot of raucous uh, overhead planes, jets. And I was a little bit startled, and then I went online, and a lot of other folks were startled, and a lot of people's pets were startled. And I was talking to Pam earlier, who was mentioning that a lot of vets uh, were startled uh, due to PTSD. And this idea that somehow we just have to kind of put up with it, that these jets are flying overhead, there was like not really any say in it. It wasn't like we were given the option, hey, would you like this to happen or not? Because I think a lot of folks would opt for it not to happen, not to have that noise pollution, and also the fuel and that that it's like a million dollars a day for the for the fuel is just a disgusting waste of resources and capital uh, uh in addition to the the noise and the discomfort that it causes and then someone p- put a great meme up on on Facebook that was like somehow this is okay with the idea of the the jets flying overhead and this is not okay with a picture of the folks who were in a drumming circle at Lake Merritt who had the cops called on them and we went over that story last week too where it's you know folks contacting the state because they are needing to somehow take over space in a way with no regard at all to the folks who are already in the space and have every right to be there. So that will go into the, the well, okay, so there's a segue, so I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I want to be very as organic as possible. Certainly there's a lot of stories to get to. Um, so this will go into the whole, they're taking down the signs at Lake Merritt. That's the, there's, there's no spoiler. That's a spoiler alert. They're taking down the signs at Lake Merritt that have been there for a really long time. So that's a good thing. Uh, a lot of them are outdated. And uh, let's see. This comes from the East Bay Express. Uh, Oakland to take down Lake Merritt signs prohibiting musical instruments. Activists plan protests. And this was written by Sam Levin. Last week, Oakland police responded to complaints about a small drum circle by Lake Merritt, prompting significant backlash from local activists who argued that the city has been aggressively policing the local activities of people of color in the park. The criticisms escalated this week after residents started circulating photos on Facebook and Twitter of signs by the lake explicitly prohibiting the use of musical instrument without a permit. In response, activists are coordinating multiple protests at the lake this weekend to speak out against what they say is excessive policing of barbecues and music at the lake. Now, however, city officials are saying that the signs in question are old and do not reflect current rules, and that people are, in fact, allowed to play music during park hours. The fact that this is even a discussion is just beyond me. And again, there's that the sign, the sign, the song, signs, you know, like how people tend to automatically believe what they see with sign or signs telling someone to do something and there's no idea to question it or who put the sign there in the first place. Uh, and that's, I think that's pretty ridiculous. And so next, uh, it says, uh, there is no prohibition against music while the parks are open from dawn to dusk. Council member Abel Guillen told the, uh, author by phone, that morning that the article was written. Uh, Guillen, whose district includes Lake Merritt, said he has fielded numerous complaints from residents about the signs, which he said are 5 to 11 years old. Drum circles that aren't amplified are permitted, he said, adding that the city plans to remove the outdated signs today. The sign circulating on Facebook is at Cleveland Cascade, which is on the Lakeshore Avenue on the east side of the lake. 
and they have a photo with the the park rules. Ugh. I mean, it's a park. I mean, I feel like there shouldn't be any rules in a park, really. Uh, uh, it's like, well, okay, against fireworks, uh, no gambling, no littering or dumping, uh, musical instruments without a permit, obscenity, hmm, okay, or allowed conduct, which I guess does not concern jets flying overhead, private groups of 25 or more without a permit, selling wares, gaming, obscenity, sleeping on park benches, which I think is kind of messed up. I don't think you should prohibit anyone from sleeping anywhere. Uh, the goal should be to make sure folks have safe places to stay instead of prohibiting it and criminalizing it. Uh, smoking within 25 feet of uh, children's play equipment, unauthorized vehicles in park, uh, going to the top, alcohol, alcoholic beverages without a permit, which I disagree with, amplified sound without a permit, bicycle riding, mm, except on just, uh, uh, the designated trails, dogs are not allowed, which I also disagree with, drug use, I totally disagree with, and then fires and barbecues, which I also disagree with. Anyway, so these signs are, these signs are old. That's the, that's the long and the short of it, and they're going to take them down, which I think is great. And getting back to the article, Guillen wrote on Facebook yesterday, these old signs are still up causing confusion. We're finding out that many of the old signs were never removed after city regulations were revised, including outdated signs at Pine Knoll Park. We understand that the city is working to remove the old, confused signs. Bottom line, there is no prohibition against music while the parks are open dawn to dusk, including the unamplified drumming that has been the subject of recent conversations. A permit is required for amplified sound. These rules and the new signs uh, uh, represent the letter of the law, but I also encourage you to practice the spirit of the law and consideration of others when enjoying the park and the neighborhood, especially where public and private spaces intersect. And don't forget, barbecues are now allowed in designated areas around Lake Merritt. Um, and Guillen said that the Oakland Parks and Recreational Recreation officials directly confirmed to him that music is allowed and also noted that the city's noise ordinance requires musicians to get a permit for amplified music um, and the music played by the black drummers who drew a response from OPD after complaints by a white resident was not amplified. Uh, Oakland Parks officials and representatives from the city administrator's office did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Uh, Mayor Libby Schaff responded to people's complaints on Twitter yesterday, saying the signs were incorrect and apologizing for the confusion. And Guillen says, I just think we need to exercise common courtesy for neighbors. Uh, it's unclear if the removal of the signs or clarifications from Guillen's office will quell the criticisms and protests. Even if drum circles and other music are technically allowed under park rules, black residents and activists say that people of color who have lived near Lake Merritt for a long time are now facing police harassment for these types of activities. And that the rise in patrolling is the result of white... <clears throat> is the result of white residents who are newer to the neighborhood increasingly complaining to police. Noise complaints have escalated on nextdoor.com, a social networking site for neighbors and the subject of this week's express cover story, which chronicles how white residents are using the website to racially profile their black neighbors. And in the spring, the city did install new electric traffic signs on the eastern side of the lake, warning that people barbecuing or drinking alcohol would get citations. <sighs> As of this morning, 2,000 people on Facebook said that they planned to attend a protest party scheduled for Saturday afternoon, and another protest scheduled for Monday had 1,500 RSVPs. 
And uh, let's see, organizers for Saturday protest have deleted the event from Facebook, but another group has scheduled a community drum call for Sunday at 11 a.m. In response to activists' concerns about the policing around the lake, Guillen told the writer that the Oakland Police Department has given out very few citations. He noted, however, that OPD has sent out bike patrol officers on the weekend, but said it's more about providing information to the public on how to enjoy Lake Merritt for everyone and making sure people understand the rules around barbecues, open containers, and amplification music. He added, we need to be cognizant of where our public and private spaces intersect. We want to make sure we can all enjoy our public spaces together. Of course. And how about making all spaces public? That would be an idea. Okay, so getting into the next uh, the next article. Oh, okay. Well, there, all right. So the next part is going to be uh, from, this is, uh, okay. So the upcoming Articles I'll get to is about the hospital that was bombed in Afghanistan that the military is refusing to take any responsibility for. And also, I like reading news about like like psychology and, and mental health um, because I feel like in our in our country, it's just not even discussed and it's looked down upon. And it's there's very little that's done to actually help people and to kind of question why things are the way they are. And this will deal. This our article is will talk about uh, how. Uh, societies with little coercion have little mental illness. So I'm definitely excited about reading this article. Um, first, I'm going to get into, because we're talking about lands and, you know, public versus private. And I think that's a whole problem right there is the idea of private land. That's kind of gross because land is for everyone. And um, so there's an article about, which is going to be somewhat positive because sometimes there are positive news stories on here, or at least articles that kind of push things in the in the right direction. And this is Time to Abolish Columbus Day. Here, here. And this is written by Bill Bigelow from Common Dreams. Uh, Once again this year, many schools will, will pause to commemorate Christopher Columbus. Given everything we know about who Columbus was and what he launched in the Americas, this needs to stop. Columbus initiated the transatlantic slave trade, and in February 1494, first sending several dozen enslaved uh, Tainos to Spain. Columbus described those he enslaved as, quote-unquote, well-made and of very good intelligence, and recommended to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella that taxing slave shipments could help pay for supplies needed in the Indies. A year later, Columbus intensified his efforts to enslave indigenous people in the Caribbean, he ordered 1,600 Tainos rounded up, people whom Columbus had earlier described as so full of love and without greed, and had 550 of the best males and females, according to one witness, Michelle de Cunso, chained and sent as slaves to Spain. One of the rest, oh, of the rest, who were left, de, de, de Cunio writes, the announcement went around that whoever wanted them could take as many as he pleased, and this was done. Taino slavery in Spain turned out to be unprofitable, but Columbus later wrote, let us in the name of the Holy Trinity go on sending all the slaves that can be sold. The eminent historian of Africa, uh, Basil Davidson, also assigns responsibility to Columbus for initiating the African slave trade to the Americas. According to Davidson, the first license granted to send enslaved Africans to the Caribbean was issued by the king and queen in 1501 during Columbus's rule in the Indies, leading Davidson to dub Columbus the father of the slave trade. From the very beginning, Columbus was not on a mission of discovery, but of conquest and exploitation. He called his expedition La Empresa, the Enterprise. 
When slavery did not pay off, Columbus turned to a tribute system, forcing every Taino 14 or older to fill a hawk's bell with gold every three months. If successful, they were safe for another three months. If not, Columbus ordered the Tainos to be punished by having their hands chopped off, or they were chased down by attack dogs. As the Spanish priest Bartolomé de las Casas wrote, the tribute system was impossible and intolerable. And Columbus deserves to be remembered as the first terrorist in the Americas. When resistance mounted to the Spaniards' violence, Columbus sent an armed force to spread terror among the, the Indians to show them how strong and powerful the Christians were. According to the Spanish priest, Bartolomé de la Casas, in his book, Conquest of Paradise, Kirkpatrick Saleh describes what happened when Columbus's men encountered a force of Tainos in March of 1495 in a valley on the island of Hispaniola. The soldiers mowed down dozens with point-blank volleys, loosened the dogs to rip open limbs and bellies, chased fleeing Indians into the, into the bush to skewer them on sword and pike, and according to Columbus's biographer, his son Fernando, with God's aid, soon gained a complete victory, killing many Indians and capturing others who were also killed. All this and much more has long been known and documented. As early as 1942, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, Admiral of the Ocean Sea, Samuel Elliott Morrison wrote that Columbus's policies in the Caribbean led to complete genocide, and Morrison was a writer who admired Columbus. If indigenous people's lives mattered in our society, and if black people's lives mattered in our society, it would be inconceivable that we would honor the father of the slave trade with a national holiday. The fact that we have this holiday legitimizes a curriculum that is contemptuous of the lives of people of color. Elementary school libraries still feature books like Follow the Dream, the story of Christopher Columbus by Peter Sis, which praises Columbus and says nothing of the lives destroyed by Spanish colonialism in the Americas. No doubt, the movement launched 25 years ago in the build-up to the Columbus Quincentenary uh, has made huge strides in introducing a more truthful and critical history about the arrival of Europeans in the Americas. Teachers throughout the country put Columbus and the system of empire on trial and write stories of the so-called discovery of America from the standpoint of the people who were there first, of people who were here first. But most textbooks still tiptoe around the truth. Houghton Mifflin's United States History Early Years attributes Taino's death to quote-unquote epidemics and concludes its section on Columbus. The Columbian exchange benefited people all over the world. The section's only review question erases Taino and African humanity. How did the Columbian exchange change the diet of Europeans? Too often, even in 2015, the Columbus story is still young children's first curricular introduction to the meaning of different ethnicities, different cultures, different nationalities. In school-based literature on Columbus, they see him plant the flag and name and claim San Salvador for an empire thousands of miles away. They're taught that white people have the right to rule over people of color, that stronger nations can bully weaker nations, and that the only voices they need to listen to throughout history are those of powerful white guys like Columbus. Is this said explicitly? No, it doesn't have to be. It's the silences that speak. For example, here's how Peter Sis describes the encounter in his widely used book. On October 12th, 1492, just after midday, Christopher Columbus landed on a beach of white coral, named the land for the king and queen of Spain, knelt and gave thanks to God. The Tainos on the beach who greet, who greet Columbus are nameless and voiceless. What else can children conclude but that their lives don't matter? 
enough already, especially now when Black Lives Matter movement prompts us to look deeply into each nook and cranny of social life to ask whether our practices affirm the worth of every human being. It's time to rethink Columbus and to abandon the holiday that celebrates his crimes. More cities and school districts ought to follow the example of Berkeley, Minneapolis, and Seattle, which have scrapped Columbus Day in favor of Indigenous Peoples Day, a day to commemorate the resistance and resilience of Indigenous peoples throughout the Americas, and not just in a long-ago past, but today. And what about studying and honoring the people Columbus enslaved and terrorized, the Tainos? Columbus said that they were gentle, generous, and intelligent, but how many students today even know the name Taino, let alone know anything of who they were and how they lived. Last year, Seattle City Council Member Kashama Sawant put it well when she explained Seattle's decision to abandon Columbus Day. Learning about the history of Columbus and transforming this day into a celebration of indigenous people and a celebration of social justice allows us to make a connection between this painful history and the ongoing marginalization and decriminalization discrimination, and poverty that indigenous communities face to this day. We don't have to wait for the federal government to transform Columbus Day into something more decent. Just as the climate justice movement is doing with fossil fuels, we can organize our communities and our schools to divest from Columbus. And that would be something to celebrate. Um, okay. So that's going to go into uh, the next very brief story, which is about the cities that have decided to do away with Columbus Day, which is great. And this comes from U.S. Uncut. These eight cities just abolished Columbus Day. And this is written by Dylan uh, Sevet. Three more cities adopted Indigenous Peoples Day in the past 48 hours. Good news. Oh, yeah. So when I initially, before I read that story, uh, I was going for the good news, which was going to this part of it here, which is people taking action to, to change the way things are set up. Following a, t a growing trend, the City Council of Albuquerque, New Mexico, has voted 6-3 to three to recognize October 12th, typically known to most as Columbus Day within the USA, as Indigenous Peoples Day in a new proclamation. Albuquerque has the highest concentration of Indigenous people in New Mexico. In the last two months, eight cities got rid of Columbus Day in favor of adopting Indigenous Peoples Day. Three of those cities adopted Indigenous Peoples Day this week. One, Albuquerque, New Mexico. The city's formal declaration encourages businesses, organizations, and public entities to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day, which shall be used to reflect upon the ongoing struggles of Indigenous people on this land and to celebrate the thriving culture and value that our Indigenous nations add to our city. Number two, Lawrence, Kansas. Since September, students from Haskell University in Lawrence, Kansas, have been taking initiative and pushing for the city to honor their ancestors by declaring October 12th Indigenous Peoples Day. Just this Wednesday, they won. Portland, Oregon, number three. Portland City Council declared Indigenous Peoples Day on Tuesday, something tribal leaders have been seeking since 1954. Number four, St. Paul, Minnesota. In August, St. Paul followed Minneapolis by declaring Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day. Minneapolis passed its own resolution last year. Number five, Bexar County, Texas. The resolution was passed Tuesday, and local activists intend to press for the same thing in San Antonio. Number six, Anadarko, Oklahoma. In September, Anadarko declared Indigenous Peoples Day. Anadarko Mayor Kyle Eastwood signed the proclamation while surrounded by tribal leaders from the Apache, Choctaw, Delaware, Wichita, and others. Number seven, Olympia, Washington. Mayor Pro Tem Nathaniel Jones 
uh, sorry, Mayor Pro Tem Nathaniel Jones presented Olympia's proclamation at a rally in August. Nearly 150 people showed up to support the initiative. And number eight, Alpina, Michigan. In September, Mayor Matt Walagora declared Indigenous Peoples Day. The city says they desire to develop a strong and productive relationship with all Indigenous peoples, including the Saginaw Chippewa tribe, based on mutual respect and trust. These cities are following in the footsteps of Seattle and Minneapolis. Meanwhile, Oklahoma City came close to passing it in September and will try to pass it again on October 13th, the day after the holiday. City Council member Ray Cardunio wrote and proposed the proclamation with guidance from local activists. The campaign was initiated last year during an Abolish Columbus Day demonstration at City Hall. Although these changes have been quite recent, the struggle for the recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day has been going on since 1954 when the, ide- when the idea was first proposed in Portland, Oregon. The Albuquerque Police Department have a notorious record of harassing and killing oppressed people. Their law, their law enforcement divisions have shot 50 people resulting in 28 fatalities since 2010. In Albuquerque, indigenous people compose 4.6 of the city's population, but 13% of its consistently homeless population. This name change is a fantastic trend that needs to grow fast, but it needs to be followed up by concrete action and legislation. Nationwide and worldwide, particularly in Latin American countries that have suffered from U.S.-backed coups, coups uh, indigenous people suffer from economic inequality, health problems, and human rights abuses. It's time we celebrate their culture and tradition rather than their oppressors, and it's time we give back to those we've taken so much from. So... There we go. Some things going in the right direction. I'm going to play some more music, and then we'll be back with some more more stories. Red. 
And welcome back. That was First Aid Kit with My Silver Lining. And I heard that on The Current, which is Minneapolis Public Radio, and they play a lot of great music on there. And I did some more research, and apparently they, they sold the song. <laughs> it was in a car commercial. I didn't know it from a car commercial, which is thankful, I suppose. And I was just thinking about before that happened, when artists didn't sell their their work to to corporations. And uh, wondering what that was like back in the day. I guess that's always kind of been, you need, um, that one doesn't need to, but how often there is to find folks to pay you to do your work. And uh, when there's a product being sold, an attachment to that, I think that's kind of uh, interesting. Anyway, I don't want to take away from that song because I think it's quite beautiful. So there I go. But just thinking about when, when, when songs are used and I can't help but not mention it because it hurts a little bit. So anyway, going into <laughs> the next article. Oh yeah, if I could work up a, a segue, that would be that would be great. Uh, but we're just gonna go right into it. And this is the article I mentioned earlier. Societies with little coercion have little mental illness. This wasn't gonna go on for a while. It's really, I think it's pretty dope. So this is written by uh, Bruce Levine, PhD, and this comes from Mad in America. That's the that's the site and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Melissa, posted this and I was like yes and I think a lot of folks who have read this are like yes and a lot of it is I feel when I finding the articles especially research that's done a lot of it's things that maybe a lot of us had an inclination about and it's really awesome that there is time and energy devoted to to proving it in a scientific way or at least folks who can provide the historical context and to make us recognize, yeah, we, f- we feel the certain way our intuition is correct and that society is, is super problematic and it's not us individ- as individuals, it's really the way things are set up and the, the lack of choices. I think there's an illusion of choice here in this country and there's certain f- there are certain freedoms and there's also you need to kind of fit into a certain box and do certain things. If you don't inherit your wealth or, or have certain connections um, or your body doesn't look a certain way, then uh, people are, are criminalized and locked up. And then that's also true, we'll get into the next story um, about bombs <laughs> bombs being dropped. And uh, <sighs> society's fucked. I think that's what I'm getting at. And a lot of us know this. And then there's like the, the personal, it's the way things are set up and then one can't help but personalize it and just think, I guess I can only speak for myself, but I know I'm not alone in this. Just the what's wrong with me if I don't fit into a certain situation or um, supposed to be a certain way and I don't identify that way, then there, society would tell us that there's something wrong with us. And I think that's a bunch of bullshit. And that's what this article goes into. So I'll go, I'll go right into it. This, this will say it. Uh, this, will, this will, I don't want, not succinctly because it is, it is a, a long article. It is uh, just, it'll say it with, Lots of good information. All right, getting into it. So again, the title, Societies with Little Coercion Have Little Mental Illness. And this came out um, August 30th, 2005, oh, 2013. So this has been out for a while, but uh, it's still, still pretty accurate. All right, throughout history, societies have existed with far less coercion than ours. And while these societies have had far less consumer goods and what modernity calls efficiency, they've also had far less mental illness. This reality has been buried, not surprisingly, by uncritical champions of modernity and mainstream psychiatry. Coercion, the use of physical, legal, chemical, psychological, financial, and other forces to gain compliance, is intrinsic to our society's employment, schooling, and parenting. However, coercion results in fear and resentment, 
which are fuels for miserable marriages, unhappy families, and what we today call mental illness. Societies with little coercion and little mental illness. Shortly after returning from the horrors of World War I and before they wrote Mutiny on the Bounty in 1932, Charles Nordoff and James Norman Hall were given a commission by Harper's Magazine to write nonfiction travel articles about life in the South Pacific. The reports about the islands of Palmodo Society uh, and the Hervey Group were first serialized in Harper's and then published in the book Fairylands of the South Seas in 1921. Nordoff and Hall were struck by how little coercion occurred in these island cultures compared to their own society, and they were enchanted by the kind of children that such non-coercive parenting produced. There is a, f and this is a quote from the, the this is a passage from the book. Uh, there is a fascination in watching these youngsters brought up without clothes and without restraint. Once they are weaned from their mother's breasts, which often does not occur until they have reached an age of two and a half or three, the children of the islands are left practically to shift for themselves. There is food in the house, a place to sleep, and a scrap of clothing if the weather to, if the weather be cool. That is the extent of parental responsibility. The child eats when it pleases, sleeps when and where it will, amuses itself with no other resources than its own. As it grows older, certain light duties are expected of it, gathering fruit, lending a hand in fishing, cleaning the ground around the house, but the command to work is usually is casually given and casually obeyed. Punishment is scarcely known. I think that's a big thing there. Punishment is scarcely known. Uh, and their words, yet the brown youngster flourishes uh, with astonishingly little friction. Sweet, tempered, cheerful, never bored, and seldom quarrelsome. And that was the passage from the book written in 1921. Uh, for many indigenous peoples, even the majority rule that most Americans call democracy is pro problematically coercive as it results in the minority feeling resentful. Roland Christjohn, not to be confused with Christopher John, the comedian here in the Bay Area, a uh, member of the Oneida Nation of the Confederacy of the Hoden Hodenosaunee uh, Iroquois uh, and author of The Circle Game, points out that his people it is deemed valuable to spend whatever time necessary to achieve consensus so as to prevent such resentment. By the standards of Western civilization, this is a highly inefficient, uh, this is highly inefficient, it's this quote unquote, achieving consensus would take forever, exclaimed an attendee of a talk that I heard given by Chris John, who responded, what else is there more important to do? And I think that's, I've been, that, I think that's great, I've been thinking about that, this idea of like, uh, people not taking the time for consensus because it's not uh, speedy enough. And I love the response that what else is there more important to do? Among indigenous societies, there are many accounts of a lack of mental illness, a minimum of coercion and wisdom that coercion creates resentment, which fractures relationships. The 1916 book, The Institutional Care of the Insane of the United States and Canada, interesting, reports, Dr. Lily Bridge of Virginia, who was employed by the government to superintend the removal of Cherokee Indians in 1827, 28, and 29, and who saw more than 20,000 Indians and inquired much about their diseases, informs us he never saw or heard of a case of insanity among them. Psychiatrist E. Fuller Torrey, in his 1980 book, Schizophrenia and Civilization, states, Schizophrenia appears to be a disease of civilization. In 1973, Torrey conducted research in New Orleans, which he called an unusually good country uh, in which to do epidemiolo <laughs> epidemiologic, ep 
epidemi- epidemiologic ed- epidemiolog- epidemiologic epidemiologic research because cons- consensus reports for even most remote villages are remarkably good. Examining these records, he found there was over 20, a 20-fold difference in schizophrenia prevalence among districts. Those with a higher prevalence were, in general, those with the most contact with Western civilization. In reviewing others' research, Tory concluded, between 1828 and 1960, almost all observers who looked for psychosis or schizophrenia in technologically undeveloped areas of the world agreed that it was uncommon. The striking feature is the remarkable consensus of, ha- of that insanity in the early studies and schizophrenia in later studies were comparatively uncommon prior to contact with European-American civilization. But around 1950, an interesting thing happened. The idea became current in psychiatric literature that schizophrenia occurs in about the same prevalence in all cultures and is not a disease of civilization. Yet Tory is an advocate of the idea that severe mental illness is due to biological factors and not social ones, and he came to be responsible for helping build the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, NAMI, into a powerful political force. How does Tory square his ideas that mental illness is due to biological factors with his own research that shows that severe mental illness is highly associated with European-American civilization? For Tory, viruses in particular should be suspect as possible agents. Tory suspected biochemical virus agents have never been found, and so why has he not considered the toxic effects of coercion? Tory is a strong advocate of coercive treatments, including forced medication, and so... And so, perhaps his blindness to the ill effects of coercion compels him. Even after discovering the strong relationship between European-American civilization and severe mental illness, to proclaim that mental illness could not be caused by social factors. While Tory researched records in New Guinea, Jared Diamond has actually worked with the New Guinea people for nearly half a century, spending extended periods of time with different people, including those hunter-gatherer tribes in New Guinea and other small-scale societies whose parenting creates an abundance of nurturance and a minimum of coercion. Diamond, in From the World Until Yesterday, 2012, reports how laissez-faire parenting is not unusual by the standards of the world's hunter-gatherer societies, many of which consider young children to be autonomous individuals whose desires should not be thwarted. Diamond concludes that that by our society's attempt to control children for what we believe is their own good, we discourage those traits we admire. Other Westerners and I are struck by the emotional security, self-confidence, curiosity, and autonomy of members of small-scale societies, not only as adults, but already as children. We see that people in small-scale societies spend far more time talking to each other than we do, and they spend no time at all on passive entertainment supplied by outsiders, such as television, video games, and books. We are struck by the precarious development of social skills in their children. These are qualities that most of us admire and would like to see in our own children, but we discourage development of those qualities by ranking and grading our children and constantly telling them what to do. Next section, emotional and behavioral effects of coercion. Once, when doctors actually listened at length to their patients about their lives, oh, once, when doctors actually listened to, at length to patients about their lives, it was obvious that many of them... Ha- 
it was obvious to many of them that coercion played a significant role in their misery. But most physicians, including psychiatrists, have stopped delving into their patients' lives. In 2011, the New York Times, talk doesn't pay, so psychiatry turns instead to drug therapy, reported, a 2005 government survey found that just 11% of psychiatrists provided talk therapy to all patients. As the article points out, psychiatrists can make far more money primarily providing medication management in which they only check symptoms and adjust medication. Hmm. Since the 1980s, biochemical psychiatry in partnership with Big Pharma has come to dominate psychiatry, and they have successfully buried truths about coercion that were once obvious to professionals who actually listened at great length to their patients. Obvious, for example, to Sigmund Freud, Civilization and Its Discontents in 1929, and R.D. Lang, oh yeah, I remember, uh, The Politics of Experience, 1967. Uh, this is not to say that Freud's psychoanalysis and Lang's existential approach always have been therapeutic. However, doctors who focus only on symptoms and prescribing medication will miss the obvious reality of how a variety of societal coercions can result in a cascade of family coercions, resentments, and emotional and behavioral problems. Modernity is replete with uh, institutional coercions not present in most indigenous cultures. This is especially true with respect to schooling and employment, which for most Americans, according to recent polls, are alienating, disengaging, and unfun. As I reported earlier this year, Why Life in America Can Literally Drive You Insane, a Gallup poll released in January 2013 reported that the longer students stay in school, the less engaged they become, and by high school, only 40% reported being engaged. Critics of schooling, from Henry David Thoreau to Paul Goodman to John Holt to John Taylor Gatto, have understood that coercive and unengaging schooling is necessary to ensure that young people more readily accept coercive and unengaging employment. And, as I also reported in that same article, a June 2013 Gallup poll revealed that 70% of Americans hate their jobs or have checked out of them. 70%. That's a lot of people. (laughs) 70%. All right. Unengaging employment and schooling require all kinds of coercions for participation, and human beings pay a psychological price for this. In in nearly three decades of clinical practice, I have found that coercion is often the source of suffering. Here's one situation that I have seen hundreds of times. An intelligent young child or teenager has been underachieving in standard school and has begun to have emotional and or behavioral problems. Such a child often feels coerced by standard schooling to pay attention to that which is boring for them, to do homework for which they have to which they see no value, and to stay inside a building that feels sterile and suffocating. Depending on the child's temperament, this coercion results in different outcomes, none of them good. Some of these kids get depressed and anxious. They worry that their lack of attention and interest will result in dire life consequences. They believe authorities' admonitions uh, that if they do poorly in school, they will be flipping burgers for the rest of their lives, in quotes. It is increasingly routine for doctors to medicate these anxious and depressed kids with antidepressants and other psychiatric drugs. Other inattentive kids are unworried. They just don't take seriously either their schooling or admonitions admonitions, uh, from authorities, and they feel justified in resisting coercion. 
that rebellion is routinely labeled by mental health professionals as acting out, and they are diagnosed with an oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder. Uh, their parents often attempt punishments, which rarely work to break these kids' resistance. Parents become frustrated and resentful that their child is causing them stress. Their child feels this parental frustration and resentment and often experiences it as their parents not liking them. And so these kids stop liking their parents, stop caring about their parents' feelings, and seek peers whom they do believe like them, even if these peers are engaged in criminal behaviors. In all societies, there are coercions to behave in culturally agreed upon ways. For example, in many indigenous cultures, there is peer pressure to be, cor to be courageous and honest. However, in modernity, we have an institutional coercions that compel us to behave in ways that we do not respect or value. Parents, afraid their children will lack credentials necessary for employment, routinely coerce their children to comply with coercive schooling that was unpleasant for these parents as children. And though 70% of us hate or are disengaged from our jobs, we are coerced by the fear of poverty and homelessness to seek and maintain employment. In our society, uh, we are taught that accepting institutional coercion is required for survival. We discover a variety of ways, including drugs and alcohol, to deny resentment. We spend much energy denying the lethal effects of coercion and relationships. And, unlike many indigenous cultures, we spend little energy creating a society with a minimal amount of coercion. Accepting coercion as a fact of life, we often have little restraint in coercing others when given the opportunity. This opportunity can present itself when we find ourselves uh, above others in an employment hierarchy and feel the safety of power, or after we have seduced our mate by being as non-coercive as possible and feel the safety of marriage. Marriages and other relationships go south in a hurry when one person becomes a coercive control freak. Resentment quickly occurs in the other person, who then uses counter-coercive measures. We can coerce with physical intimidation, constant criticism, and a variety of other means. Such coercion result in resentment, which is, the poison, which is a poison that kills relationships and creates severe emotional problems. The International Nature of Depression, 1999, edited by psychologists Thomas Joyner and James Coyne, documents with hundreds of studies the interpersonal nature of depression. In one study of a happily unmarried uh, uh, <laughs> in one study of unhappily married women who were diagnosed with depression, 60% of them believed that their unhappy marriage was a, the primary cause of their depression. In another study, the best single predictor of depression relapse was found to be the response to a single item: "How critical is your spouse of you?" In the 1970s, prior to the domination of the biopsychiatry Big Pharma partnership, many mental health professionals took seriously the impact of coercion and resentful relationships on mental health, and in a cultural climate more favorable than our current one for critical reflection of society, authors such as Eric Fromm, who addressed the relationship between society and mental health, were taken seriously even within popular culture. But then, psychiatry went to bed with Big Pharma and its big money, and their partnership has helped bury the common-sense reality that an extremely coercive society creates enormous fear and resentment, which results in miserable marriages, unhappy families, and severe emotional and behavioral problems. Whew! So there you have it. Uh, again, that was written by Bruce Levine, PhD, and you can find this article 
uh, on madinamerica.com and also on, on the weekly review page, which is facebook.com slash weeklyrev. We share articles on there as well. So this is going to go into the next song, and I was initially looking for the original of the song, uh, by Suicidal Tendencies, Institutionalized. And then I saw Body Count did a cover of it. So I thought, oh, this should be good. So there's a few a few lines I find a little bit problematic. Uh, they use the word bitch, which I don't like to, unless it's a bitch magazine, I kind of uh, don't like it. There is a, a part about outsourcing, which I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't dig uh, marginalized folks uh, putting each other down. Uh, those are my comments about the, the cover of the song. Uh, I do feel overall it's very relatable. So perhaps folks can relate to this. So uh, here is Body Count uh, with their cover of Institutionalized. Yo, I came home from work the other day. I was tired. I just wanted to sit back in my big chair and play a little Xbox. You know, relax a little. Then my wife comes in. She starts telling me I play too much Xbox. I said, what the fuck do you mean? how I relax. Can I just play a little Xbox? Then she says, I saw an Oprah today that guys that play video games don't love their wives. I'm like, motherfucking bitch, fuck Oprah. I don't give a fuck. I just want to play my video game. I don't give a fuck about Oprah. Oprah ain't got no man. You better worry about your motherfucking self. I just want to kill some motherfuckers on Xbox. She said, you seem like you have a Sandwich! 
sugar is in that Kool-Aid? I said, do you realize how much blood is in the human body? Do you want to see it, motherfucker? He said, oh my God, you need therapy. You have an anger problem. Ah! I'm not crazy. Institution. You're the one who's crazy. Institution. You drive me crazy. Institution. They put me in the institution. Said, what's the old solution to give me the professional help to save me from the enemy myself? And there is a body count. So again, I'm not a fan of the word bitch. Uh, <laughs> and I wasn't too into the whole, you know, the calling for support and making fun of the, the person on the other end. Other than that, I can definitely relate. And also, I was vegan for a while. I, I get it. Though, I think the whole, I get the whole, the, the password part, just the... Uh, Everyone forgets their password and, and, and the hoops to kind of go through through that. And uh, it, it kind of went into that previous article about relationships and stuff. And it's really just about autonomy and people just wanting to do what they want to do. And it's like that's just about like pretty much leaving people alone and not telling people what to do and what to eat. Uh, I think that would solve a lot of problems. And again, going into coercion, like what people should or should not do. And uh, I definitely have – I'm all for – if one can find ways to eat and survive and it's definitely possible without eating animals, uh, more power to us. And one thing to do is then to provide options for folks, you know, instead of telling, instead of shaming someone for what they're eating, why not invite someone out for a vegan meal? I think if, if vegan folks with, with capital, you know, wanted to do that, just offer free vegan food, uh, and that would help everybody. So getting into the next story, that was a nice way of ending it. And yeah, fun cover. Uh, I don't know if it's fun, but the video is pretty funny. And at the point when uh, Ice-T is, is entering his email online, it's his, his username is like Ice motherfucking T. That was funny. So yeah, so getting into this next not funny article um, is from The Intercept. And this was written by Glenn Greenwald. We all know, we all know Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> I have a bit of a crush on him. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this is... Uh, all right. Why is the U.S. refusing an independent investigation if its hospital airstrike was an accident? And accident is in quotation marks. Whew. Okay. This goes back to the military-industrial complex and also coercion, right? Because it's all connected and people following orders and not questioning what they're told to do leads to a lot of terror in the world and a lot of deaths. This was written October 7th, uh, 2015. Uh, this was published anyway. All right. In Geneva this morning, Doctors Without Borders, MSF, demanded a formal independent investigation into the U.S. airstrike on its hospital in Kunduz. The group's international president, Dr. Joanne Liu, uh, specified that the inquiry should be convened pursuant to war crime investigating procedures established by the Geneva Conventions and conducted by the International Humanitarian Fact-Finding Commission. Even war has rules, Liu said. This was just not an attack on our hospital. It was an attack on the Geneva Conventions. This cannot be tolerated. Liu emphasized that the need for an independent, impartial investigation is now particularly compelling, given what she called the inconsistency in the U.S. and Afghan accounts of what happened over the, se- over the recent days. On Monday, uh, The Intercept documented the multiple conflicting accounts offered in the first three days uh, by the U.S. military and its media allies, but the story continued to change even further after that. As The Guardian's headline yesterday noted, the U.S. admission that its own personnel called in the airstrike, not Afghan forces as it claimed the day before, 
meant the U.S. alters story for fourth time in four days. All of this has led Liu to state the obvious today. We cannot rely on internal military investigations by the U.S., NATO, and Afghan forces. An independent, impartial investigation into what happened here should be something everyone can immediately agree is necessary. But at its daily press briefing on Monday, the U.S. State Department, through its spokesperson, Mark Toner, insisted that no such independent investigation was needed on the ground that the U.S. government is already investigating itself and everyone knows how trustworthy and reliable this process is. Question. The, so MSF is calling for an independent investigation of this incident by a neutral international body. Is that something the administration would support? Mr. Toner says, well, we've got three investigations underway. Certainly, we've got our own DOD-led investigation. We obviously strongly believe that we can be a very transparent and accountable uh, investigation. Let's let these three investigations run their course and see what the results are. Uh, I would say, and I know the White House spoke about this earlier, we have reached out to some of the leadership, and this is, uh, yeah, uh, okay, um, I think this is Glenn's perspective. Uh, I would say, and I know the White House spoke about this earlier, we have reached out to some of the leadership in Medicine Sans Frontieres to express our condolences over this tragic incident, but as to whether there needs to be an independent fourth investigation, we're satisfied. Um, uh, we're satisfied. I think at this point that will that enough investigations are underway and that will get the truth. Oh, so this is still from Mr. Toner. It's just not in italics. Okay, next question. Uh, you don't think that with the U.S., which is, which has an interest in how this investigation proce proceeds and what the outcome is and being involved in all three investigations somehow affects the legitimacy of it? And... Uh, Mr. Toner says, I mean, frankly, I think we've proven over time that we can investigate incidents like these, like this, and as I said, hold anyone accountable who needs to be held accountable and do it in such a way that there's transparent, that that's transparent and I think credible. The question, just along those lines, Mr. Toner says, please, the question, MSF has said that this is a clear presumption of a war crime that's been committed here. Some have suggested that the ICC take it up. Is it a safe bet that the U.S. would vote against or veto any attempt by the Security Council to bring this incident for up for an ICC investigation? Mr. Toner responds, I don't want to answer a hypothetical uh, on the war qu crime question itself. We're just not there yet, and I don't want to prejudge any outcome of the investigation. Please, sir. Next question. What do you mean, we're not? We're just not there yet? And Mr. Toner responds, I mean, we're conducting investigations. We're looking at this very closely, and what we're going to do, as far as multiple folks have said, including the president over the weekend, that we're going to hold the those accountable, and it's going to be a credible investigation. Question. Does that mean... Question. So it's conceivable to you that this could have been a war crime. Mr. Toner says, I said we're not. We're letting the investigation run their course. Question. Well, regardless of whether or not you, Mr. Toner responds, I'm not going to. I'm not even. Yeah, please, Matt. Question. No, but I want to. Mr. Toner, sure, go ahead, sorry. Question, it is not, I mean, I, it's always been assumed, I think, and I just want to know if this assumption is still safe, that the U.S. would oppose an attempt to refer an incident involving U.S. troops to the International Criminal Court. Mr. Toner responds, that's the question. Uh, I mean, as it's as it was being formed, you guys ran around signing these Article 98, 
Mr. Tono responds, that's a perfectly sound assumption. Can anyone justify that? So predictably, American journalists have announced without even waiting for any investigation that this was, an, this was a terrible accident, nothing intentional about it. Those U.S. defending journalists should be, at the, should be the angriest about their government's refusal to allow an independent, impartial investigation, since that would be the most effective path for exonerating them and proving their innocent, noble in- intentions. Many Americans, and especially a large percentage of the nation's journalists, need no investigation to know that this was nothing more than a terrible, tragic mistake. They believe that Americans, and especially their military, are so inherently good and noble and well-intentioned that none would ever knowingly damage a hospital. John McCain expressed this common American view and the primary excuse now accompanying this, it, stuff happens, on NPR this morning. I find it ludicrous and insulting that people would say that because of this terrible accident that somehow a war crime was committed. The Taliban do these these things on purpose and with a plan. This was a terrible accident. It's called the fog of war. And that was John McCain quoted on NPR. Uh, they're certain... Uh, they're certain of this despite how consistent MSF has been that this was a war crime. They're certain of it despite how many times and how recently MSF notified the U.S. military of the exact GPS coordinates of this hospital. They're certain of it even though bombing continued for 30 minutes after MSF pleaded with them to stop. They're certain of it despite the substantial evidence that their Afghan allies long viewed this exact hospital with hostility because, true to its name and purpose, the group treated all wounded human beings, including Taliban. They're certain of it, even though Afghan officials have explicitly defended the airstrike against the hospital on the ground that Taliban were inside. They're certain of it, despite how many times the U.S. has radically changed its story about what happened as facts emerged that prove its latest claims false. They're certain of it, despite how many times the U.S. has attacked and destroyed civilian targets under extremely suspicious circumstances. But they are not apparently so certain that they desire an independent, impartial investigation into what actually happened here. The the facially ludicrous announcement by the State Department that the Pentagon will investigate itself produced almost no domestic outrage. The religious-like belief in American exceptionalism and tribal superiority is potent indeed, and easily overrides evidence or facts. It blissfully renders the need for investigation obsolete. In their minds, knowing that it was Americans who did this suffices to know what happened, at least on the level of motive. It could not possibly be the case that there was any intentionally here at all. As McCain said, it's only where it's only the bad people, not Americans, who do such things deliberately. But those who already know that this was all a terrible mistake that no U.S. personnel would ever purposefully call for a strike on a hospital, even if they thought there were Taliban inside, should be the ones most eager for the most credible investigations possible. (coughs) Namely, (coughs) the one under the Geneva Conventions, which MSF this morning demanded by the tribunal created exactly for such atrocities. So if you want to read the whole article, it's on The Intercept, and this, again, was written by Glenn Greenwald, and also the, the excerpt that I read, which was the conversation between the questioner and Mr. Toner, it's a little bit more clear to see when you're uh, looking at it online than uh, I can't do it the adequate justice by reading it, but if you want to read the whole article, check out The Intercept, and there's also a video um, online uh, on the website as well 
of the representative from MSF, uh, Joanne, Dr. Joanne Liu, who, who's, who talks about it as well. And um, I think, uh, yeah, we're going to go into another song and then another story. And then I'm going to play the interview from the, the completion of the interview from last week, uh, which I had with uh, Brad and Jesse about the propositions, uh, <coughs> excuse me, which will be on the ballot November 3rd. So everyone go, go out there and vote. And you don't need to have an exact address. If you don't have an exact address, you can write down uh, Cross Street. You can also go register at City Hall. So that's something that um, some folks might not be aware of. But please, uh, I'm very skeptical of the system. If you listen to the show, if you talk to me, you know that's absolutely true. I do, however, feel um, if we're given the opportunity to voice our opinions, then one should be able to do that. And uh, changes can be made in a lot of, I'm all about grassroots, certainly, and all about just daily interactions and different ways to to make change. And also, uh, if there are ways to make change within the system, if it just requires a little bit of time, then why not give that a shot? So I'm going to play another song, and then I'll be back with another story. And then the interview. All right, so... Here we go. This is a song from St. Vincent, and here we go. Bodies, can't you see what everybody wants from you? Forgive the kids, for they don't know how to
and welcome back to the weekly review. That was St. Vincent with Cruel. And here's another segment I hate doing on the show. Uh, it's, uh, so this comes from The Advocate. Uh, Philly trans woman becomes 20th murdered in U.S. in 2015. <sighs> so um, this article was written by Clay Abeni. Uh, it's from October 6th. The Philadelphia Police Department confirms to the advocate that 22, a 22-year-old trans woman known as Keisha Jenkins was murdered today. Jenkins' death, which marks the 20th trans woman reported murdered in the U.S. this year, comes less than two months after advocates confirmed in August reports of three additional black trans women killed in the preceding months. Officer Tanya Little, a spokesperson for the Philadelphia Police Department's Officer of Public Affairs, states that Jenkins was attacked by five to six males and shot in the back while exiting her vehicle at 13th and Wingo Hawking Streets at around 2.30 a.m. in North Philadelphia. She was pronounced dead at approximately 2.53 a.m. today at Einstein Medical Center. We will leave no stone unturned, says Little, noting that, while no motive is known at this time, investigators are considering the possibility that Jenkins' transgender identity played a role in the attack. Little also stressed the following, The victim's gender is definitely something that investigators are looking into, and we will consider her identity under the umbrella of all motives. We are canvassing the area where the homicide occurred for witnesses and investigators hope to examine available surveillance videos. Jenkins was a 22-year-old Philadelphia native who attended West Philadelphia High School and Temple University, according to Philadelphia Gay News. Philadelphia TV station WCAU reports that Jenkins was first beaten by her attackers and shot in the back twice by one of the assailants after she fell to the ground beside the vehicle. No further information is available at this time about the identities of the suspects, and no arrests have been yet made. Jenkins' death follows that of another Philadelphia black trans woman, 21-year-old London Chanel, who was found deceased shortly after midnight on May 18th in front of an abandoned North Philadelphia house after being stabbed twice. Chanel had moved to the city several years earlier from her hometown of Victoria, Texas, where she reportedly lived in a youth shelter, as the advocate reported. Although Pennsylvania does not have statewide hate crimes legislation, Philadelphia City Council members last year unanimously passed a policy that allows local law enforcement officials to impose stiffer penalties against those whose violence is motivated by bias, including that based on perceived or actual sexual orientation and gender identity. Jenkins becomes the 20th transgender woman confirmed murdered in the U.S. in 2015, highlighting while trans, why trans advocates continue to decry an epidemic of transphobic violence. The vast majority of the women killed this year have been transgender women of color. By comparison, 12 transgender women were murdered in all of 2014. Uh, the story is developing. If you have any information on the shooting, please call Philadelphia Police at 215-686-3334. And again, this is from The Advocate. And so discouraging and upsetting and depressing uh, that this continues to happen and getting into the whole idea of like hate crimes legislation that just goes into the idea of punishment <coughs> and if that energy <coughs> and resources was spent in terms of educating people so this didn't happen in the first place as opposed to how to deal with punishing people after it does happen i mean the goal should be for this never to happen at all and that just needs to go get, be geared in towards uh, in terms of education.
<sighs> so it's heartbreaking. Um, and I believe there's also um, a f there's a page up to raise funds uh, for uh, Keisha Jenkins' friends and family to afford uh, burial, which is something that I, I see um, quite often just victims of uh, violence. And that's something that maybe some folks, I guess, depending on all the bubbles that we live in, some folks might not be aware of. But there are, you know, some folks raise money for projects, you know, creative projects um, or health costs. And then some folks raise money to um, care for the, the families of people who have lost someone due to violence. And it's, it's just so, so, uh, disgusting that this, that this continues to happen. Absolutely. So I'm going to, let's see here. I'm going to post the, the fundraising page on the weekly review page. Um, so if folks are able to contribute, uh, please do. And so it's a GoFundMe. Uh, it looks like it's it's offline right now. So if I do, if it comes up again, um, and this happened, there's another, there's a trans woman who was murdered in Missouri a few months ago, um, Tamara Dominguez, and that they they had a fundraising page as well for her, and it went offline after a while. So I'm not sure what the cause of that is, um, but just to know that this this continues to happen, and that's really that's really quite uh, problematic. Uh, there's another um, story that I'm going to get into. This sounds really interesting. I'm going to get into it. It's long, so I'm going to get into it next time. But it's, uh, is it a man or a woman transitioning in the cis male gaze by Ray Filar? Um, and, oh, I really want to read this. Uh, running a little bit low on, on time, though. But I'll, I'll read the first part of it because that's what I can do. And perhaps we'll finish it up next uh, next week. Um, so this is from a Verso. It's, it's an excerpt from Verso Books. Uh, Pre-op, post-op, no-op. Not until recently did anybody question why trans people should be defined exclusively by whether or not they've had genital surgery. Though gender variance has existed in most cultures throughout time, trans people today, particularly women, are still forced to situate themselves in relation to the idea of the medicalized sex change. Have you had the op? Are you planning to? Are you taking testosterone? How far will you go? Suppose transgender tipping point aside, we have set we have a set of expectations to live up to. To be trans, you must come out as trans. You must undergo a lengthy process of transitioning. You must make a trans statement, and these are all in, in quotation marks, appearing as trans in public before preferably disappearing into your quote unquote new gender, man or woman. Visibility is key here. The cis gaze demands you reveal yourself, offer yourself up for evaluation, even as it threatens you with violence for doing so. As Juliette Jacques shows in her new memoir, Trans, the history of the sex change is not just one of cis power over trans lives, but of cis prurience, reducing a gamut of differing trans experiences and embodiments to a set of sexualized assessments. Does she pass? Is that top surgery or just a chest binder? Is it a man or a woman? For trans men, have you had the op? Can be mixed with total ignorance over what the op might actually entail. Our castration anxiety is society wide. Jacques traces European trans identities back from before the late 19th century emergence of sexology, mentioning Dionysian cross dressing 
and its biblical prohibition in Deuteronomy 22.5, an abomination unto the Lord. That's my perception of that. But today, any trans person who desires to live openly has to contend against a set of arbitrary gender dogmas uh, barely changed since the early sexologists. From the 1880s onwards, male scientists assumed rights over other people's experience of gender, inventing terms, categories, and treatments for those they termed sexually deviant. Richard von Kraft Ebbing, considered the first sexologist to believe that living as another gender was a delusion, and that transsexual people were psychotic. This so-called science was enacted as social control, the legacy of which we are still contending with. And just as a side note, this this really deals into that article earlier about coercion. Whew. Trans lives are structured by dehumanizing constraints invented by cis people. These regulate how you are and aren't allowed to be trans through lawmaking and medical institutions. Just to live while trans requires supplication to stigmatizing state processes. It is invariably compulsory to state your gender when doing anything official. Opening a bank account, renting a room, and getting a job are just three examples. Amnesty International's 2014 report, The State Decides Who I Am, Lack of Legal Recognition for Transgender People in Europe, details how, in several European countries, including Belgium, Denmark, France, Italy, and Norway, transgender people cannot obtain new documents reflecting their gender identity unless they undergo genital reassignment surgeries and sterilization. For many trans people, there are more important things than gender reassignment surgery, particularly if you are of color. Being trans disproportionately means experiencing poverty, unemployment, homelessness, state violence, and male violence. It means being subject to a widely high rate of mental ill health. One survey found that 48% of trans youth had tried to kill themselves, in comparison to 6% of young people generally. Meanwhile, wanting, gen wanting gender freedom is considered more pathological than believing, against all, all the evidence, that people divide neatly into two unchanging types. Only, one, only last week, the UK Ministry of Justice declined to extend legal recognition to non-binary gender identities, despite being petitioned by over 30,000 people, stating that they did not see non-binary people as facing any specific detriment. Ugh. As, Nat, as Nat Raha explains, the liberal trans activist push towards political rights viciously reproduces socioeconomic divisions along intersecting lines of race and class, gender, sexuality, disability, nationality, and immigration status. While any meaningful trans movement must look past rights to radical action, at a basic level, lacking legal recognition means that non-binary people are closeted by law. To be trans is to have to f have the fight against gender oppression inscribed on your body. Jacques points out that the difficult part is not living as the gender genders you identify with. It is living in a neoliberal patriarchal society. It is facing down the simultaneous fascination and horror with which many people regard the idea of stepping out of an assigned gender box. Intrusive personal questioning and the disproportionate murder rate of trans women of color are two ends of a spectrum that offers up trans lives for examination through the scrutiny of our bodies. So transition, sex change, or to some extent coming out 
are cis fantasies. They are cis fantasies that obscure the processes by which cis people create their own genders. Whether cis or trans or gender nonconforming, gender is never static. Gender identity has no fixed endpoint. It is a lifetime of changing feelings, experiences, and attitudes. If gender is a set of relationships to ourselves, to others, to the boxes others put us in, then no adults are the same gender, really, as when they were when they were born. And in 10 years, they will be different genders still. Medical intervention is not the culmination of a clear process of transition between woman and man or vice versa. It is a set of technologies that help to alleviate body dysmorphia at a particular point in time. After the transition is over, there's still a lifetime of gendered experience to have. The myth that this identity, or the myth that identity is contained within anatomy, ah, the myth is that identity is contained within anatomy. Society is fascinated with changing bodies. The lie is that the ritualized gopping is not erotic. As Jacques points out, mainstream media representation of trans people is almost synonymous with the use of sensationalist before and after photos that mask processes of change even as they ostensibly reveal them. And as a side note, I remember I was interviewed, a friend and I were interviewed on the news. This is back when Chaz Bono came out like years ago and they asked for like before and after photos and there was some hesitation. Like, do we really want these? And then of course I am very much like, I don't trust the media. However, the opportunity to be on camera and to speak about it, even though they totally edited, they left out a lot of the good parts of the conversation. I feel, uh, they, they definitely went a more of a sensationalistic route. However, I felt it was, I'd rather be out and like show myself than not, be seen at all but yeah definitely the the before and after i think is, is really problematic okay getting back into the uh the the article okay so uh, the before and after photos that mask uh, processes of change even as they ostensibly reveal them trans people's body alternations must be seen trans people who do not bo body modify are ridiculed or presumed not to exist this is why some of the uk's more backwards feminists get so uh, head up uh, over the idea of female or lesbian penises. For them, biology is destiny. Even more sympathetic coverage doesn't always avoid the tendency towards spectacle. Deviant bodies are simultaneously put on display and stripped of their agency. At this time, at in this, there are clear parallels with coverage of sex work and sex workers. As Melissa Gira Grant writes, aside from an origin story of her life before, this is where the exposition will be confined. The red light, the bed, the men, the money, everything else is out of frame. But trans people's understandings of themselves, trans and queer communities' takes on gender, are far more developed than any other. We understand the expansive possibilities of gender expressions and experiences beyond and outside of the binary or within it. The challenge that we present to the cis mainstream is to question not how bodies and identities relate, but how gender ident identities are organized around the regulation of populations into life and death, while trans women of color are streamlined often toward death, while cis white men make the decisions that put them there. A fixation on the sex change obscures a whole realm of trans experiences that may have little to do with genitals. This is the context in which trans emerges, claiming the right to self-define, to self-represent, 
In this, it sits within the canon of trans memoirs, most famously Lily Elba's Elba's Man into Woman and Jan Morris's Conundrum, self-authored life stories framed around being trans. Jacques sets the book up against the born-in-the-wrong-body stereotype, and in doing so, tries to escape from the genre's usual constraints. It is more than a trope of unhappy girl trapped in the wrong body becomes happy woman after medical intervention. There is art, music, there is experimentation with the trans memoir form. But by framing the book around her reassignment surgery, Jacques steps out with only limited success. Still, it's a dual it's a dual it's a double bind. Do you start your book with what people will find most interesting appalling? what people see as the epitome of the trans experience, or refuse to and lose readers? Will cis people still care when we stop showing them what's in our pants? Uh, one, cis people, okay, and this is just the, the note, uh, cis people, uh, and the author, uh, I define cis as labeling people who choose to live within the gender they are assigned at birth, who may or may not have a complex or anagenistic uh, relationship with their assigned gender, but who nevertheless choose to use the terms and social categories broadly assigned to them. All right, so I'm going to do a song, and then I'll get uh, into the... Actually, I'm going to go play the, the conversation right now. I'll play in some music while I'm um, setting that up. This was a song that I heard earlier, which really, uh, was really pretty. Okay, and uh, yeah, here we go. And we'll be back with the remainder of the conversation from last week. Or maybe or walk or, or, or just squat in these in these apartments. Just yeah. Every, uh, you know, during holiday, you know, weekend, holiday weekend, you know, mm-hmm. and dress mm-hmm. up as ghosts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. But, so yeah. F is, <clears throat> excuse me, the 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 two best biggest wonderful features of F mm-hmm. are the 75 days a year. Mm-hmm. It's not F is not terribly different from Compos's legislation uh-huh. that he brought before the board. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much that. Uh-huh. And the way that um, Supervisor Compos figured the 75 day limit was that even at 120 days at the current rates of renting an apartment on Airbnb, a landlord could still turn a profit without having to rent it out at market rate to a tenant. So 120 days a year, right, like that leaves the apartment 
vacant for 245 days a year. Uh-huh. Nevertheless, if, 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 if the, uh, the landlord can make more money on Airbnb than renting it mm-hmm. to wow. a, a, a permanent tenant. Right, okay. right. So that's where, you know, the, the days, I think the, the number of days in the law right now are 120. Uh-huh. And um, the, what's the, 90, 90 days was proposed, right, but, but David, David pulled it back to, to 75. But 75 uh, doesn't mean that you're not, you don't make a profit. It just means you don't make as much as you would if you uh, rented your tenant. Is that right? Right. Okay, so so it, sure. These people are still making money. Of course. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Right. And then the the other piece is the right of action piece. So uh, Airbnb is kind of spinning it that your insane, crazy, you know, vindictive neighbor is going to bring litigation against you when your grandma, you know, Uh rolls up to your front door with her suitcase. But the, the thing that they're not saying is that individuals individual tenants, individual citizens have the right to sue Airbnb mm-hmm. itself. Oh. They have the right to sue the platform itself. Not necessarily the neighbor. Not necessarily the neighbor. Oh, that's that, correct. Okay. Oh, that's yeah, that's that's correct. So the rights of action were, were like put back in. Mm-hmm. They were basically pulled out of even the CHU mm-hmm. legislation. Mm-hmm. But so your list of endorsements, are, we endorsing, are you endorsing F? Is F is great. Okay, F is great. Okay. F, is, F is fantastic because they'll be able to really super quickly move upon the greatest abusers. So do you have, do you want to read off your, your no, Brad, this is Brad's personal list of endorsements? This is not my personal <laughs> list. No, no. Actually, we came up with this, uh, Council of Community Housing Organizations. So, so a lot of people are in here. Do you sure. agree with most of those endorsements? Yeah, I'm on, I'm with every one of these on this on this particular list. So CHP Community Housing Partnership is in here, Mission Economic Development Agency, Chinatown Community Development Center, Treasure Island Homeless Development Initiatives, Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corp. Um, uh, Summit Community Action Network, right? Right. A lot of people. The one that is sadly absent from this list is the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. Oh, right. So, <laughs> yeah. So we just off the, the list of the endorsements, just the names of the propositions and, and right. <clears throat> so A, of course, is the Affordable Housing Bond for three hundred and ten million dollars. Fifty million is uh, tagged for the mission itself. Avalos was able to increase the amount from the mayor's office original two hundred and fifty to three hundred and ten million dollars, adding sixty to it. Part of the money will replenish the small sites acquisition fund, Mm -hmm. which is scheduled to be zero very soon. So every, yes, the okay. uh, the affordable housing bond, and even developers are saying yes okay. on the affordable housing bond. It's very strange. Mission Rock is the giant's development down in the parking lot mm-hmm. at right. Mission Rock right now. I can can you remember the total number of units? It's massive. They get it's massive. They get height variances um, because Jane applied uh, her prototype legislation that I don't even know what happened to that called the dial yeah. so if if a developer will commit to building 
more affordable housing with within the brackets as you go through that AMI situation. Then they can go higher. Then they can, yeah, they they get a variety of variances. So I think it's four really big towers. And, how, and what what percent are affordable? Forty. Forty percent. Well, forty percent will be affordable. So that will that could set a precedent uh-huh. that could help to set a precedent beyond the kind of corny, weird legislation that the mayor's office just put forth, mm-hmm. which is sort of like uh, the it. It's like if you put your Scott Wiener goggles on and look at the dial. Uh-huh. That's what the mayor's. That's what the mayor's office is proposing. So I don't. I think the Sierra Club is actually against Mission Rock. Oh yeah. And I would be willing to bet that the no wall on the waterfront people are going to right. rally against it. But at this point, it seems like a no-brainer. And if voters see forty percent affordable units, it's gonna. We've been discussing is short-term rental stuff, and we're definitely yes okay. on F. Don't buy the hype. <laughs> no, really, they have billboards. You know, it was scary. I was watching MSNBC News in the TV room, cable, mm-hmm. cable news. Oh. A fucking no on F commercial like pops oh, wow, up. Wow. Yeah, I've been seeing in the mail, just all there. Yeah, yeah. And even in some store windows, like no on F. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I is the mission moratorium. Right. This mission moratorium is 18 months long. So it's not the same version that, that Supervisor Campos tried to push through and all the residents and activist residents of the mission. Mm-hmm for just a simple 45 days. Right. This is a bona fide year and a half. You can inform yourself about this by going to the planning department's interactive map. Mm. And you can see like the swath of, of developments that are either, that go all the way from already being permitted mm. or having broken ground up to PPA, mm. which is just proposal, mm. you know, planning planning proposals. So, and it's, it. It's like a bulldozer just drives right down yeah, the, yeah, like the center of the mission, yeah, right. right? So who, uh, who's backing this proposition? Who's the, who's the power behind it? Who wrote yeah, I? Yeah, who wrote I? You know what? I don't know. I don't know, but I would be I would be willing to bet it would be me. We could find out from Mita or Twenty um, Fourth Street okay. people or any of the huge long list of. Okay. Uh, we could ask Laura. Right, right, right. We could ask Guzman okay. if she if she knows. And they all the rest of Mission Group are endorsing it, right? Well, a lo- yeah, a lot of them. There's a really strange sign on the armory that says oh, no. Yeah. yeah. Right. And what what the Laura just got the download on that. She posted the other day of like why they put that sign up. They no longer want to produce pornography there. Their licensing is not that. They want to have an entertainment venue. And I remember reading a few months ago that they also wanted to use some of the space for like co-work space, like we work. Right, right. Right? But those permits are in process. And if the proposition passes, they have to wait for a year and a half. Before they can, I can see why. And the photography they were producing was so dull. 
So Jay, Jay is like, but we're yes on I, despite the sad loss of kink.com. The, <laughs> we're yes, we're, of course we're all yes on I. You know, the, the other piece of the opposition was the um, city study it's, itself. But what the city study did not address was the Mission 2020, the the forthcoming right. neighborhood-driven plan for what the mission is going right, to right. look like, you know, it, as all of this activity goes. Right. Yeah, Jay is legacy businesses. So do you know this one? No, I don't know. I'm not really fond of this, but I think that as a stopgap measure, it will have to be a yes because uh, landlords and business owners can apply for grants from the city where landlords can then exact rent increases and um, commercial it, commercial tenants can stay right yeah, but right the, but uh, if what is why what's legacy what are they saying about that like legacy I think or, or legacy no I, I if I recall correctly, it's 30 years. So if a business has okay, been there, so 30, it's longevity. Right, it's longevity. It's like the martial arts studio in the Mission that uh-huh. had a shutter after being there right. for 45 right, years. Right. Yeah. I, I know they tried to pass something like this in Austin. They, they, it was it was more almost a, a, something akin to like a, a historical designation, where it's a, 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 it was one of those businesses that gave the the, the, the city or the, the community kind of. It had unique characteristics and, and like anything else, and then that that mm-hmm. was you know they, they could they could uh, they could apply for some you know some support, and so they wouldn't go out of business. But I, I don't think that passed either. Of the young mm, I hope this one does you know, pass because you know like in the when was it like Marcus uh, or uh, Garvey the. Uh, Marcus Garvey bookstore. Thanks right. for that one. Say, right? Stuff like that. Right. Yeah, Modern exactly. times might survive. You know. Yeah, right. yeah. The thing, that, the thing that frosts my ass a little bit about it is that taxpayer funds go into landlords' bank accounts. Well, is it, but that's the same thing with the with uh, the affordable housing bond. Right. You know? It's like Mass I mean, release. Yes, it's yeah. exactly the same. I don't, I don't really like that part yeah. of it, but. You know, New York City, it just keeps coming up. Um, Greenwich Village is just like shut down. Right. So all the storefronts are shuttered. Wow. Mm. Right? All of the funky things that made the village the village and everywhere, you know, so low east, all of it, everything that made all of those neighborhoods, those neighborhoods, the landlords triple, quadruple their rents just to get the tenants out, shutter it, sit on the empty storefronts waiting. That you know, New York City doesn't have right. the same kind of no big box stuff that we've got right, here. Right. No chain, no big box stuff. So they just sit and wait for like Chase to want right. to open up a, a little mini branch right. or CVS. Which we now have on both sixth and seventh, right? right. Like that's bizarre. We, you know, speaking of shuttered, I just noticed that the blocks of Leavenworth between uh, Turk and Allison and Ellis between Eddie, Eddie and Ellis, all, all those stores are closed. All the little Chinese, you know, uh, Vietnamese uh, sandwich shops and and the the, the Mexican restaurant on the, on the corner. Uh, suddenly, there was a driving little community that's sitting there like seven, you know. Wow. Uh, and that's of course right in the right in the right in the zone. Right, right to, next to the, to the museum, you know. Well, that's and they were something. I'm not sure. I went and talked to one of the guys who was moving out. He said it just got too expensive, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Anyway. So that's the, but you know, that, that, that corridor mm-hmm. from Golden Gate and Leavenworth in um, the neighborhood investment webpage of right. the mayor's office. Right. You should check that out because mm-hmm. it's like all neighborhoods. You could go through the whole thing and see what the mayor's office has in mind. Yeah, for what do they have in mind for that? Well, Leavenworth and Golden Gate is, is uh, earned the nomenclature this troubling intersection. It's called Hill Hill. Hill Hill, yeah. Yeah, Hill Hill. So, yeah, there's there's a, all kinds of just actu- actually seething entrepreneurial, sidewalk entrepreneurial right. activity going on there. <laughs> and then they jump up to, um, they jump up to Eddie and they jump up to Alice. All of Larkin Street is tagged, which is really weird. Uh-huh. All the way from, you know, Golden Gate or uh, McAllister up to Geary, uh-huh. which is really bizarre. Tag, tag, tag for what was that mean? Well, they're they're just like uh, you know he has a little map like hot spots like these are trouble the, spots. These are the yeah these these are the hot spots and then these are the pieces that we we'd like to focus on the tenderloin out of all of the neighborhoods in the city on that website. The TL is the only neighborhood that gets a neighborhood report card. Hmm. Oh God. I don't really know uh, exactly what that means, but anyway, so okay. legacy businesses, yeah, legacy yes, businesses, yes, is a yes okay. completely. K is surplus lands, public surplus lands, public lands, and public lands. Mm-hmm. So all the surplus lands that cities have will uh, affordable housing developers will be given first right of refusal. Okay to either take on a project in that place or not. So that's a no, that's a total no-brainer. So we can keep cool. Lennar. Right, 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 our land, our land. Right. Yeah, yeah, so we can keep Lennar and the right. whole Lennar, Pelosi, Newsome thing from Swap, like right. they swallowed Yerba Buena. Right, right. Island. Now, now tell me again, Lennar, that's the, the real estate company, L-E-N-N-A-R? Yeah. That's owned by... Or is it, that has ties to Pelosi? Oh, yeah. 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 That, that is an octopus that uh-huh. you can... That, yeah, that that one deserves its own radio show. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. And the, the consulting groups and the, um, the consulting groups and the um, developing groups are all down in the ferry building. Okay. okay. You know, if you go into those offices of the ferry building and there's these, suddenly you encounter these, like, Security, you know, you're like, wow, is the president here? Right. Because right. they're throwing that, you yeah, know, they're throwing that particular shade, right? But they're just these, right. they're just these development companies and these, cool. yeah. So, so what are the rainy ones? Oh, uh, well, we had um, lobbyists to see regulating lobbyists, but that's actually a smokescreen for oh. charging not for profits money that or, they or, don't or for have. Or recycling, you know, uh, you know. Uh, people participating in in, 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 in the, the democratic process, you know, they just, it, I mean, I don't, I don't know if a lot of nonprofits would, would, would actually, you know, be, um, have to register as lobbyists, but it would, it certainly, it, it kind of damp, it, it's, they're trying to put a damper on people's participation, right. you know. Well, who like, was it that got nicked for like a million dollars? It was like the spike budget cut from 
Mark Farrell. Oh, I don't, oh that, that, because you remember that the, it wasn't the right, coalition. Yeah, it, know, was it was like, the anti-eviction defense project, I think. Yeah, know, it, but that was the, because they it was were, a they housing were, advocacy. They right, came right. to the Mission Moratorium right, public, right, and they and protested, it, and right, apparently too vigorously, and so their funding was slashed. You know? That's exactly but right. He said it out loud. He did. Know? He said it out loud that it frustrated him that certain agencies that were basically being subcontracted and funded by the city right. were here to criticize the right, city. Right, exactly. You know, it's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so that, this is sort of like a little... Right, right. It's a this little is a piece you know, of like, that. Right. So this is what we can do to you. About yeah, this is know? a piece of that that just... Right, yeah. yeah. That's what it, that it's, is. It's, it's, it's a nasty piece of legislation. So no. No, no. So we no, say no. no. And then there's the ever-bizarre Proposition E, which is truly weird. Yeah. In a way, it seems like a good thing because... It, it derives from the complaint that working people don't have time to go to 250. Right. 250. They don't have time for right. public comment. It's really outrageous and unusual, they believe, right. to have to hire a babysitter to 2 o'clock in the morning right. Right. when public comment finally ends and so forth. They right. essentially want to be able to electronically participate right. mm. in the right. conversation of public Comment. So they have the board of supervisors the who are poor, too poor to go during the workday. We'll have Skype at home. I don't know. Yeah, whatever they no. It, I really, I think, I think it's it, it's driven more by like the overworked right. class, okay. the overworked oh, right, professional right. class, right? Right. But the provision in one of the provisions in it protects that digital public comment by anonymity. Mm -hmm. So anyone, anywhere, with access to the internet, like the vast trolling factories in Russia, could be making public comment Mm -hmm. in um, the city and county of San Francisco. Very bizarre. And then there's another weird piece in there where if you can get 50 folks to sign a petition, you can actually change the spot of an agenda item on the schedule so you can you can move it to you know whatever time it is yeah. that you got the babysitter to come wow. right but this would just cause incredible if anybody is spends any time at room 250 at all you will know yeah, that's, that's that they you know president breed has to rip through yeah, yeah, any yeah, given yeah. agenda right. just to get done right so Before nine o'clock at night. No, no, and that's supposed to be sponsored. It sounds like it's pandering to the to the techie people. But it's sponsored by someone who is actually going to be on the ballot, right? Yeah, uh, I, I can't remember David, his name. David, David uh, Lee, something like that. He's going to be. He's running for, for one of the supervisory positions, as, as people often do. When you want to, you know, build support for your campaign, you you, you attach yourself to a proposition or to yeah, know, and then uh, in order to you know, to build up your organization. And if you need a little bit more credence than just my advice, almost all of the Sunshine Ordinance people. You know, all of the people that worked on the Sunshine Ordinance, anybody that continues to do that work now, right. are are saying no. Right, right. Absolutely right. no. Yeah. This is the weirdest thing right. ever. Yeah, they, just, they use our language, but they're not, it's not, you know, to our benefit. So those are the ones we got. Right. There you go. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So that was an interview with uh, Brad Self and Jesse Johnson. So that wraps up the show for today. Thank you all so much for listening. And stay tuned because up next is Global Vow with Women's Magazine, followed by the Common Thread Collective. And as always, there are shows here uh, all 
every day, every day, and you can come by and check some of them out in person always. So we're the corner of 21st in Florida. Thank you all so much for listening. And uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing and try to avoid that coercion that uh, leads us to hurt one another and fuck the military industrial complex, which uh, is just terrible. Okay. Uh, yeah. And hopefully we can all live in a more peaceful world. So uh, stay tuned for Val and uh, have a wonderful week and take care. And, uh, yep. Let's see.